So for those of you who've been following this series, we're tracing Paul's letters through the book of Acts. So I want to sort of set out something of a biography of Paul, but at the same time, try to position where his letters fall into that story uh, and to look at the story behind why he wrote them in the first place. Paul didn't write these letters in a vacuum. They had a context and a lot of that context related to the situation in which Paul found himself. So we're sort of tracing that story through and where we got to last week, um, Paul was in the middle of dealing with an ongoing issue in Corinth. Now, he doesn't realize at this stage that it's going to be an ongoing issue, but it actually turns out that it is. So when we look at the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, um, the reason when we when you see a letter, uh, a second letter of, of Paul's, we already saw it in Thessalonians, the reason why there was a second Thessalonians is because 1st Thessalonians didn't work. And the same thing is true for Corinthians. We have two letters because the first one really didn't do the job. In fact, in some ways, it made the situation worse. So we've been trying to unpack that a little bit. So if you just tuning in, I'd encourage you to go and listen to last week's episode to get the context at least of this week, and um, we'll pick it up from there. So where we left the story last week, it's around about autumn 51 CE. For you in the Southern Hemisphere, autumn is in our spring. So autumn we're talking about actually right now. Um, we've just come into spring here in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, so we're talking about sort of this time of year, um, September through to November is uh, autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. So um, it's autumn 51 AD, thereabouts. And Paul has been in Corinth for 18 months now. And so he it's time for him to depart to, um, to his next place. The next place he wants to do his missionary work. His time in Corinth is finished. It's becoming very clear that he's not welcome there, from certainly from the local Jewish authorities. Uh, and so he moves on now with Priscilla and Aquila, who've become his really his partners in the missionary work. And they're actually going to turn up a couple more times in Paul's story. So they go over to Ephesus and they continue on their work over there. So Paul is a leather worker, as they are. So they all go and work together and set up a new shop over in Ephesus and, and continue the work uh, in that city. Now, in the original story, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus earlier on. He was called over to Macedonia, ends up in Greece. Uh, but now, finally, he gets back to Ephesus, which is really, if you look on a map, Ephesus is really the... Um, sort of the key port city for Asia Minor. It's really the capital of the region. And it's a very powerful city, very large city. Really, any anyone coming to Asia Minor is going to go through Ephesus. It's a very large city for that reason. Uh, and so Paul goes over there. And as his strategy has been, he goes to the large cities because that's where the people are, but also that's where the people are traveling through and they're going out of Ephesus deeper into Asia Minor. And Paul has a different strategy now for church planting. We're going to come to that later on. But Ch Paul changes his strategy to really utilize uh, a lot of that travel that's coming through the region. So it's about this same time uh, Paul uh, arrives with Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, um, but he's, he's not going to stay there for the moment. He needs to go and get a few other things done, and then he's going to return to Ephesus. So he departs from there, and it's about that same time that Apollos arrives in Ephesus, and then he gets sent over to Corinth. Um, and so we talked about that last week. So again, go and have a listen to that, and that's going to sort of catch you up on how Apollos fits into all of this story. So now we're coming into, it's the, um, 
it's sort of the end of 51 and Paul is, uh, he departs, he, he goes, well, we'll pick up the story actually. The story picks up in Acts 18 verse 19. So they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. They asked him to spend more time with them. He declined. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed in Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Now, that's a short part in Luke's narrative, but actually that takes about a year, that event. So just a little bit of context here. Travel is really slow in the ancient world. I'm sure that doesn't come as a shock to you, but it was also very restricted. Around the Mediterranean, the fastest way to travel is by sea, but you can't travel by sea during winter. It, the waters are too rough. There's just no sea travel. You, if, you, if it is, you do it at your own risk. And so we mark off winter as a time when everything really shuts down. If there's travel, it's only going to be by land. Uh, and even then, it's going to be restricted up north, certainly by snow. Um, it's just a time when you don't really do much travel. So when we talk about winter here, we use those as marker points. So um, what's happened is that Paul has left Corinth and he's gone to Ephesus during autumn coming into winter. So he does that before winter sets in because he can travel by sea during the autumn. Um, once he gets to Ephesus, uh, he quickly leaves to go down to Jerusalem because he wants to get down there again by sea before the winter sets in and before he's stuck in Ephesus for that period of time. So there's a bit of a rush towards the end of the year to get all of your travel out of the way so that you can get to where you need to go and then you can bed down there for the winter. So Paul uh, gets down to Jerusalem and then he travels north up through Caesarea, but he travels by land. So this takes time again, to do all of this travel, goes up to Caesarea, uh, back around through Galatia, which is where he'd just done all his church planting previously, and, and then he works his way back down to Ephesus. So that's going to take you about a year, even by virtue of the travel itself, but there's things that he wants to do along the way. He's visiting people, he's um, he's doing various things uh, as he's doing his, his travel. So there's about a 12-month period. So what that does is that brings us back to winter the following year. So we've, we've sort of uh, end of the year, beginning of 52, Paul leaves Ephesus and he returns there end of 52, beginning of 53, thereabouts, and he arrives back in Ephesus by land. And at the same time, Apollos is still over in Corinth. So Apollos has been there for about a year by now, um, doing a lot of work over there, and especially what we find out later on, planting new churches, doing um, a new work over there, um, which is seemingly going to, or it has, is going to lead to divisions later on, especially because there's people that Apollos is ministering to that don't know Paul. They're coming into Apollos' ministry. They don't know uh, Apollos. Uh, they, they don't know Paul. They only know Apollos. And what we, well, again, we'll come to the story later on, but what has is going to occur here is you're going to start to get Divisions happening in the church. People saying, I follow Paul because he's our guy, and that others are saying, no, no, I follow Apollos. So again, we'll come to that story uh, momentarily. All right, so that brings us to the beginning of 53, and that's where we're going to slow the story down a little bit and focus in on, on what's actually happening while Paul is in Ephesus. So we pick up the story in Acts 18 verse uh, nine, sorry, uh, Acts 19 verse 8. 
So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So this is what I was saying a moment ago about Paul uh, changing his ministry style. So prior to this, Paul Paul's strategy is to go into the city and do all of the church planting, start all of the house groups, uh, and then leave behind guys like Timothy to do the sort of the ongoing work of establishment and this sort of thing. Now, this is a really slow way to do things because if you remember, Paul's in a hurry. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Paul needs to get this message to the ends of the earth, which in his mind was Spain. So they hadn't discovered America yet. So we're, we're talking about Spain as the edges of the world. Paul's trying to get to Spain as quickly as he can so that he can bring about the return of Christ. And so he realizes that his strategy so far is a bit slow. So he changes his strategy in Ephesus. Instead of doing the work himself to try to reach all the cities of Asia Minor, which are plentiful and a long way away from each other, he decides that the best way to do it is to send out the church planters, so to train them up. So what Paul does in Asia Minor is that he bases himself in Ephesus for the whole time. Before, again, he'd been through Macedonia and visited the cities himself. This time around, what he does is that he sends out, he trains up church planters and he sends them out to do the work for him. So this is where we get the churches of Revelation from. So all those churches that we read about in Revelation, they would have been started by Paul during this period. So he does this in this lecture hall, this scholae of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know who this Tyrannus is. We don't know where the school is. It's just, but it was obviously there when Paul was there. Now, in, a, in certain um, manuscripts of the New Testament, it actually adds the detail that Paul taught from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., now, that's an important detail because if you go to that part of the world, it's very, very hot in the middle of the day, especially through summer. It's, it's, you just can't do anything. And so the, whoever this Tyrannus guy was would have done his teaching before and after these times. He would have done early morning, late afternoon in the cooler times of the day, which meant that the room wasn't being used during the middle of the day, which is when we find Paul using this room. So he probably would have got it for cheap or even for free as a result of that. So he is doing more of a Bible college model here, training up the ministers who are going to go out and do the work for him on his behalf. And so he stays there, we estimate about three years. Uh, he's, he's quite a long time in Ephesus. And the work, again, is what we find in Revelation, all of these uh, cities that have been reached have been reached during this time. It's probably while he's in Ephesus that he's met Philemon, so we obviously meet Philemon later on. Um, Philemon was from Colossae, which is a, an, a city within that region. So this is where a lot of this action is, is taking place. Now, while Paul's in Ephesus, he's doing ministry in the city as well. And we read about some of these crazy things that are going on in, in Acts 19. So verse 11 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illness were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, I've talked about this in a previous podcast, so you can go and check that one out. But the real point that we need to recognize about the ancient world is that it's a very spiritual place in the sense that there's a, there's a real 
um, concern and a real awareness that everybody has with the spiritual realm. It's, it's what we call an animistic society. The point of that is that there are spirits under every rock. There are spirits from your ancestors and other people's ancestors, and there's gods for absolutely everything. There's, there's a spirit or a, or a powerful force behind everything that you touch and experience in your world. And these spirits can be very capricious if they want to be. And so your goal in life is just don't get in their way. Don't offend them. Don't do anything that would bring about their ire. That's the last thing you want to have happen because those gods can turn against you and do terrible things. Now, on top of that, you've got a situation where people, are you die very young. You know, a third of children die before the age of one. Half of children are going to die before the age of 10. And almost every case of that is because of disease. Very, We think war is the biggest killer. It's, it's only a fraction of the people that actually die in the ancient world. The majority of people in this time die from disease. And that's really true up until only a very recent time in history. So this is a world where you're in constant, you're constantly aware of death. If it, it, it's going to come from a god or some spiritual force, or it's especially it's going to come from a disease, which can be sent by the gods. But mind you, the gods are responsible for those things as well. So it, you you constantly in this state of you don't know if today's going to be your day. Um, your average life expectancy is about thirty five. So to die young is very normal, and this is just how life is. So it's a, it's a place of real, there's a real uncertainty about life. There's, there's a real fear that comes along with that. And so when this message like Paul's comes along, which isn't just a message of hope, but it's actually backed up by power. It's actually backed up by healings and miracles that go along with it. That is going to be very attractive. People are going to gravitate to that message if only because we could get healed there. This God of theirs actually does the work of healing. Uh, and so that's going to have a lot of appeal uh, for this. And so what we see in Ephesus is this in a heightened way. Because what I've just described really describes the ancient world. Now you need to amplify that. And that's really what we find in Asia Minor. What characterizes Asia Minor is that it's a place of that's that's even the very spiritually aware. It's everything we've just talked about, but is really multiplied in this particular region. And so that's why you see in this story, Paul's been traveling through Greece and Macedonia and you don't get a, I mean, there are miracles of course, but you don't see the same emphasis on this, but it's when he gets to Ephesus that this stuff really takes hold. You get these stories start to multiply a lot more. They happen here because again, this is a region that is really well known for exactly this thing. So the story continues, Acts 19, 18. So many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachma is about a day's wage. So this is an awful lot of money that is going up in smoke here. Now, what's happening here? You've got these sorcerers going on. Well, again, I've talked about this being a very spiritual place. Um, the spirits and the demons and these all of these powerful forces are very real as far as people are concerned. But if you can manipulate them, then that can work in your favor. It's not that you just stand back and passively wait for these spirits to do things to you. If you know what you're doing, you can actually use them to your ends as well. 
Now, what you get in um, in Ephesus is this thing called the Ephesian Grammata. Now, it's a series of six words, and they're nonsense words. They're not real words. Um, but if you can say these six words properly, pronounce them absolutely perfectly as they're meant to be pronounced, and use them in just the right way, you can actually manipulate, control um, spiritual forces to your particular ends. So the power of these words actually resides in their sound. So if you get it just right, again, you can you can turn these demonic forces to your power. Now, I use the word demon because that was the word used to describe the spirits, daimonia. Now, we think, you know, if you talk, if you sort of in the Christian context, we think about demons as being this evil force in the minions, minions of Satan. For the ancient person, a demon just meant a spirit. They were neither good nor bad. They were just, the, that's what you called the spirits. Um, they could do evil things or they could do good things. It just depended on the mood they were in. So you could control these demons through the use of these words. Now, these scrolls that we're talking about that have just been burnt here would certainly have contained those words. That, was, that would have been kind of at the core of, of what these scrolls were doing. So that was a very common practice you get. And we still find this in archaeological remains. One of the things you find very commonly are these lead sheets of lead. So you just a very thin sheet of lead, which is obviously a very soft metal, and what you would what you would do is you would scratch into them a curse. So you would write a curse about somebody, your enemies, and you know ter- you would curse them with terrible things. You know that their genitals would fall off, or they would have miscarriages, or just really horrible things you would wish for these people. You'd scratch them into these lead sheets, and then you roll them up, and then you pierce them with a nail, and then leave them somewhere around the person's house, somewhere near where they were going to come into contact, and that would bring about the curse. So we find heaps of these. I mean, if you could just Google um, lead curse tablets, you're going to see heaps of examples of them. So these were absolutely everywhere. And again, the goal of this is to, to manipulate these spirits to your particular desires. So all of that's happening in the background in Ephesus. Uh, where Again, we're still at about the beginning of 53. Paul has arrived back now in, uh, in Ephesus, and he's this is where all of this work is going on. Now, the thing about his time in Ephesus is that there are two parallel stories that are going on. There's the story that Luke tells us here that we find in Acts 19, but there's also this other story that's going on in Corinth, and we actually learn about this ultimately from 2 Corinthians. So you've got to piece these two together, run them parallel, and it makes it a bit hard to tell the story, but what I've just described is all of the Ephesian ministry. All of that's the stuff going on over there. So that's the stuff that's clear from Luke. But on the other hand, you've got this other story going on as well. So in around about spring, um, uh, coming into summer in 53, so in the same year Paul arrived in Ephesus, Paul gets a report from the church in Corinth saying that there's a few issues going on. So particularly issues around sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, we don't know what these are. We only know that Paul responded to them. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, in my previous letter, I said to do these things. Now, what was going on? What did he say? We don't really know. There was a whole letter attached to it. There's a whole situation attached to it. But again, we, we don't know what that situation was, exactly what the behavior was. Now, it's just a minor point, but 
it actually reminds us that our first Corinthians is actually second Corinthians. There was actually four letters that Paul sent. So this was the first letter he actually sent to them, um, which is this, what he refers back to in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. So he sends this letter and it's been misunderstood. They haven't understood what's going on. They've, um, you know, he has to sort of repeat to them or remind them again of, of what it was that he said. So that's the beginning of 53. About that same time is when Apollos returns to Ephesus. Um, now, it could be, in fact, that Apollos actually brought this report in the first place. We don't exactly know. But Apollos certainly comes back to Ephesus at about this time, and he's now working with Paul in Ephesus. So all of that's going on. Beginning of 53, there's some reports, and I guess that's to be expected. Um, you know, Paul has already had issues in Galatia. He's had issues in Thessalonica. It would make sense that he's going to have issues that he needs to follow up. Or there's questions that only he can answer. The people that he's left behind maybe don't have the, the answers to these questions. So Paul's the one who needs to do that. So at any rate, he sends this letter, but unfortunately, the letter is misunderstood. All right, so now we need to fast forward about another year. So we, we're leaving behind for the moment the year 53, and we're moving to the beginning of 54. So about 12 months has gone by, and all the stories that I just talked about in Acts 19 is when all of those events were happening. So it's it's a pretty busy year for Paul, and things are getting more busy because he's got more churches that he's needing to do follow-up work with. So about a year goes by. Now we come back to spring in 54. Now, spring is when everything starts happening again. It's when travel starts to happen again. It's when wars go, when, when kings go off to war again. Everything begins again in spring. So the sea lanes are opened up again, and Paul receives now two correspondences from Corinth. Um, first of all, there's a letter that's delivered from Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Now, Stephanus is one of the house church leaders that Paul has established there. So this is a guy who's still loyal to Paul. Fortunatus and Achaicus are probably his slaves that have brought uh, the letter along with him. So they've brought a letter from the church to deal with some of these issues to um, uh, uh, bring to Paul's attention some issues that are going on in the church. But then there's also a verbal report from Chloe's household. So Chloe's household, we're not 100% sure where this situation has come from. Um, it could be that she's writing from Corinth or that it could be she has got, she's actually from Ephesus and she sent some slaves to Corinth to do some work for her. They've come back and reported to her in Ephesus, hey, there's these things going on in Corinth. And then she's brought that report over to Paul. But at any rate, he gets this whole um, series of issues that he needs to address, all of these different things that are going on. And it's this that he's responding to in our First Corinthians. So what we get in 1 Corinthians is just a list of problems um, in chapters 1 to 4, and this is, one of, this is really the primary issue, is that the church is dividing up over who their favorite teachers are. So they're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Now, the Cephas and the Christ parties, we don't know what's going on there. In fact, the Christ party is probably just an exaggeration on Paul's part. What is definitely of concern is the I follow Paul, I follow Apollos faction. Now, we talked last week a bit about Apollos. Apollos was a great orator. He was an extraordinarily gifted orator from all accounts. And so that would have really appealed to the Corinthians. They had a real, um, everyone in that time had a real um, desire or they really liked good oratory. But especially in a place like Corinth where you have the Isthmian Games, 
that has as one of their chief events the uh, the orators. So they're used to having the best of the best come into Corinth. And so when a guy like Apollos comes along, he's fantastic as opposed to Paul, who just didn't seem to be that good. Now, by Paul's own confession, he says, when I came to you, I, I came in weakness and fear and trembling. That wasn't how I normally preach. It's just that I did that intentionally so that you wouldn't focus on me. I wanted the focus to be on Jesus Christ. He didn't want the attention to be on himself uh, or, or anyone to claim that they're coming to salvation because just because of his great eloquence, but rather through the power of God. So Paul avoids that, but Apollos, that's his meal ticket, right? That's what he does. And so this really appeals to some of those Corinthians who've been a bit disillusioned with Paul, but then also... Um, the new people that have come under Apollos' ministry, those guys would have obviously been loyal to Apollos as opposed to Paul. Now, where these divisions would have occurred would have been within the different house groups. If you imagine the church is not one whole unified, the church of Corinth, but rather it's a whole series of houses who are independently working together in their own little groups. And that's how the ancient world works. You work within the context of a household. So one household will be an extended network of people that are dependents of that particular house and their loyalty would be to the head of that house. So if the head of that house becomes a Christian, then everyone becomes a Christian and everyone's loyal to that particular brand of Christianity that that particular guy um, holds to. So it's very easy to see the context in which these divisions are taking place. They're happening within the already existing small groups that are already quite autonomous in the way that they do things. But then there are a series of other issues, and we're going to go into more depth in these in the future, but you've got a guy in a relationship with his stepmother. Now, that's not good form at any time, but in the Roman world, that's illegal. Now, in the Jewish world, it's, immor it's, um, it's sexual immorality at the very least, but it's also um, forbidden in the Le Levitical law. So this is altogether really, really bad. It's basically criminal behavior that this guy is engaged in, and Paul's concern isn't so much with the man doing this. He's livid about that uh, and, and acknowledges that this person isn't part of the community. What he's more concerned about is the Corinthians haven't done anything about it, that they're still boasting about how superior their spirituality is, that they're so amazing in Christ, and yet they're just tolerating this behavior. He's, he just cannot fathom it. It's people boasting about how holy and how righteous they are and then just allowing all of this crazy behavior to go on and say there's nothing wrong with that. Well, it, it's either one or the other. It can't be, it can't be both. Uh, and so when Paul responds to them, he says, you've got to hand this man over to Satan. Quite simply, this guy's behavior is exactly what you expect of somebody who's in Camp Satan. Now, you can be in Team Jesus or you can be on Team Satan. You can't be both. And if you're, on, if you're doing this sort of behavior, you're clearly not Team Jesus. You are Team Satan. So to hand this man over to Satan is just to acknowledge you're not part of our team, right? Go back to where you belong, right? It's, it's as simple as that. But then in chapter 6, you've also got a situation where people are taking each other to court over really trivial matters, things that you could just deal with over a conversation, the reason why you take people to court in the ancient world is very often just to publicly slander them. The courts happened in the middle of the forum. It was a public event. Everybody knew what was going on. And so the reason you took somebody to court was to publicly slander them. Even if you have no basis for the charge, the goal is just to defame them. Uh, much like, you know, 
the sort of the defamation cases that we we hear about today. That's kind of what we're talking we're talking about here. But the fact that they're doing it publicly, it's really the ancient equivalent of social media. It's the public forum. It's the place where it's not even about necessarily you know you not even care about what this person has done but you just want to make sure that everybody sees them to be a bad person and so again paul says the fact that you're doing this to one another who you are who are supposed to be brothers in christ the fact that you're doing to this uh, this to each other tells me that you're already defeated you you basically have lost your salvation at this point you're certainly not the body of christ because you're doing a really good job at tearing that thing apart but then in chapter 7, there's a whole different set of issues. What he, Paul finishes chapter 6 by just saying to them, hey guys, all of this sexual immorality that's going on, and the sexual immorality that he's talking about was what happened after a meal. So you go up to meals and you socialize with your elite buddies, and what will always happen after the meal is something of a symposium. It was basically just a big drinking party with lots of sex. And for anyone in the Greco-Roman world, this is perfectly normal behavior. This is not particularly unique, immoral behavior in Corinth. Everybody does this. This is standard pre-Christian behavior. And well, even post-Christian in any part of the world, even today. So this is very, very normal stuff. And the Corinthians are doing this, not seeing a problem with it. At least some of the Corinthians are not seeing a problem with this. But there are another sector of the church who are saying, hey, actually, you know what? Um, that's obviously really bad. And this probably would have been the Jewish sector who are saying, no, that's really, really bad. And so the way that we're going to avoid sexual immorality is that we're never going to have sex again. So on the one hand, you've got people who are going, we're just going to do sex the way we've always done it. And this other group who are saying, absolutely, you know, we're going to do the opposite and we're never going to have sex again. Now, Paul begins chapter 7, and he says, look, you know, just, just with regard to sexual immorality, um, you know, it's better not to touch a woman. That's, kind of, that's actually what the Corinthians are saying. They're saying, we'll never touch a woman again. We'll never have sex again. Paul says, look, that, that's one approach, but because there's so much um, temptation and there's so much immorality going on, the best thing to do is to have sex within the confines of marriage. And so chapter 7 sort of sets out all of these issues that are going on around the area of marriage. And there's too much to go into here. We'll do another podcast on, an, on, on an, another podcast on another day and we'll go through all of that there. But that was another issue that, that Paul was having to deal with. Then, then in chapters 8 to 10, we've got another issue where you've got these some of the Corinthians who are wanting to go up to the festivals. They're, they're still wanting to go up and worship or going up to the, the sacrifices to the gods. Now you would say, well, hang on, you're Christian now. You don't want to go back to those idol gods. And it wasn't about the worship. It wasn't even it wasn't about the sacrifice. The point was to be seen. The point was to just be present in those events because you want to be seen to be there. You, you want to continue the connections and the networks that you that get established in those places. You want to maintain those relationships. And the justification they're using for it is that an idol's nothing, that it's just a piece of meat. There's actually nothing real about this. It's just a meal, hanging out with my friends. It just happens to be in the vicinity where there's this sacrifice going on. But it doesn't mean anything. I don't believe in it. So what does it really matter? And Paul's response is to say, look, I, I get it. I agree. That's true that it is just a piece of meat, that it is just a piece of rock. It's not a real God. There's only one true God, and that's Jesus Christ. I get all that. The problem is that not everyone in the church does. The problem is that there are people in the church who have a weak conscience that just don't quite get 
the depth of understanding, the knowledge that you have, they still think it's idolatry. They still think it's worshipping an idol god. And they're going to join you, but they're going to do it out of worship. They're actually going to participate in that thinking that they're doing the or do it in their and in their conscience thinking that they're doing the wrong thing. So in their minds, they're actually sinning. You guys realize, okay, look, it's just a piece of meat. It's just a rock. It's not for you. It's not sin, but for them, it is. They're doing it because you're doing it, but they're doing it in violation of their conscience. So you're actually causing these people to sin. That's a problem. That's a real problem. That's what you can't do. So the best thing to do is just don't go at all. That's the simplest solution here. Just, yes, you have the right to be there, but you don't have to exercise that right. Yes, you've got the freedom to be there. You don't have to exercise that freedom. Rather, you can lay your freedom down, lay your rights down for the sake of your weaker brothers because they're more important. Their salvation is much more important than you exercising your right again. This is a topic we can pick up another day because there's so much in this. But then he says in chapter 10, hey, look, at the same time, guys, um, don't forget that just by being there all the time, sooner or later, it's going to win you over. You can't just keep going to those places and not be led back into it. So just for your own good, for your own sake, just don't go. The simplest solution here is just don't go at all. That's, that's the best thing we can do here in this, in this particular situation. Then in chapter 11, we've got this issue of head coverings. Now, the very first episode of this podcast, we deal with this whole passage here. So just go back and check out episode one, um, and we'll go into depth about chapter 11 there. But then following on from that, you've got another issue where they're doing the meal, which is the church service. We've talked about this, but when you come to church, you do a meal. That's what you do. And the way that meals work is that they reinforce the social status of the people in the group. So the head of the table gets the best food, has the best seat at the table, and then everybody is seated and fed according to their status in relation to the host. So it's a way of reinforcing the, the hierarchy. And that's exactly what the Corinthians are doing with this. The, the way that they're doing their meal is that everybody brings some food along to this meal and they all bring their own food to eat. Um, what the wealthier ones are doing is that they're coming early because they don't have to work. They're coming early with all of their wonderful food. And then all of the poor people are coming after work with nothing because they've got nothing. And they're basically sitting there hungry while the rest of the people in the church, the wealthier ones are drunk and have been feasting all day and having a great old time calling a church. And then these poor ones are coming along later on going, um, I guess we do church now, but you've been doing the church for a while and you've been having a pretty good time doing it. In other words, this isn't the body. This is not, this is not the Christian Eucharist, okay? This is absolutely anything but that. This is more like a Greek symposium than it is Christianity. So that has to stop. That is as bad as you can possibly get because what you're doing there is just the opposite to what Christianity is. Then in 12 through 14, you've got a situation where you've got some of the church, and again, these elite members who speak in tongues, and they 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 seeing their gift of tongues as being their, what makes them superior. So that's they're coming to church just to show off their spiritual gifts, and they're being elevated as a result of that. Uh, and so the gifts are being used, again, as a way of, of reinforcing this hierarchy in a very status-conscious society. The Christian community is just carrying on that same behavior, but now, unfortunately, using Christian symbols 
to reinforce that status. It's it's just it's horrible. <laughs> what's what's going on here? It really is quite a mess. But then over all of this, what seems to be justifying this behavior is a misconception about the resurrection. So the Greek idea of the afterlife is that we die, our souls depart our bodies, and the souls are the only things that go on to live forever. This is traditional Platonism. So the soul goes off to live forever in Hades, and so the body is just something we leave behind. It's just it's the stuff of this world. Um, but it's actually of no consequence. The body itself is of no consequence. As Plato says, it's just a prison house for the soul. So the soul is the only thing that really matters. So for work on the soul, the body is of, of no real concern. Uh, so these, this, this is used as a justification then for any sort of behavior because what you do with, with the body remains in the body. It's of no consequence. There's no eternal value to it. Uh, and so who cares what you do with it? Um, it doesn't really matter at all. And so the Corinthians are going, well, that's the same thing, right? We're, yeah, we're going to be going off to be with Jesus in our soul, but the body is, is, is of no concern. Paul says, no, absolutely the body goes off. The body, it's a bodily resurrection. Um, this is not just some Platonistic thing. There's an entire bodily resurrection that goes along with that. And this body that you've got is, is what gets sown into the ground. It's a seed that becomes the plant later on. So what you do with the body absolutely matters, including in all of these issues that we've been talking about. And so finally, he comes around to chapter 16. And it's actually in here that we get two really serious issues um, that, that, that are actually going to ultimately blow up in Paul's face. In Chapter 16, verse 1, he talks about this offering for Jerusalem. Now, this is an offering that Paul's been doing throughout his missionary journeys. Jerusalem's going through a difficult time, and so Paul's taking up this offering as a way to support them, and he's using these Gentile churches to do that. But the other, the other part of this offering is that it's building a bridge to the church back in Jerusalem. So it's saying to the Christians in Jerusalem, hey, these Gentile Christians, we're all one and the same team here. We're all part of the same family. So he's been taking up this offering, and he'd already been taking that up in Corinth. So the way that he speaks about it here is more by way of reminder. Okay, so what I've said to you before, just carry on the way that I've instructed you about this before. But something's changed since Paul was there. Now, if you remember, in last week's episode, we saw that when Paul got to Corinth, he refused to take their support. He he didn't take their support for the reasons that the Corinthians were, were sort of using the offering as a way to own him. They were using um, their support of him as a way to own him as their own personal apostle. So Paul refuses to engage with that. But then when Timothy and Silas arrive from Macedonia, those guys actually bring with them support from Macedonia. Now, that is going to lead to offense. The Corinthians are going to say, hey, you're not taking our money, but you're going to take it from the Philippians. What's up with that? Why, why is their money better than our money? So this, this, is, a really, this is a real cultural affront that, that Paul has really put on these Corinthians. And so they've been quite offended by that. Add to that, when Apollos came, he did take their support. Again, we talked about this last week, but he did take their support. And so that only sort of fueled the tension that they had um, uh, against Paul, and it would have led to some of the people saying, we follow Apollos, we don't follow Paul, because Apollos takes our support. He's our guy. Literally, he's our guy because we're paying for him. So you've already got this going on here, but then this seems to clinch the issue. So Paul says, all right, we're taking up this offering for Jerusalem. 
And some of these Corinthians put two and two together and get five and say, oh, we see what's going on here. You're not, you're not doing this for Jerusalem. You're doing this for yourself. You're going to pocket this money. You're embezzling from us, Paul. You're a thief. You're not an apostle. You're a thief. And so this becomes the chief accusation that actually leads to what we find out later on in 2 Corinthians. But then there's a second issue in this same chapter. In 16, chapter 16, verse 12, Paul says, Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you, but he says he's not ready to come just at the present moment. Now, what's that about? It's, a th- it's almost a throwaway line. I-, I bet you didn't even know it was there in your Bible. You probably don't even read 1 Corinthians 16 because it's just a list of greetings. It's a list of names. It's like the New Testament equivalent of the book of Numbers. So I bet you've never seen that verse, but it is so crucial to what is going on in this story. So what has happened is that the Corinthians have actually said to Paul, hey, when is Apollos coming back? If you remember, Apollos has returned the previous year. So he's been away from Corinth for, for over a year by now. And they've written to Paul, that particularly the I follow Apollos party, have written to Paul and said, hey, when's our guy coming back? Right, we're, we're done with you, Paul. We're not interested in you anymore. We want our guy back. Paul's response is to say, I just spoke to Apollos about this because Apollos was there with him. And he says he's not, he's not ready to come back just yet. Now, you read between the lines of that, what Apollos is saying here is that I don't want to fuel these divisions. If there's, if there's parties going on, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to make this situation worse. So I'm not coming back to that. Now, read between those lines and what you get is the Corinthians going, oh, he doesn't want, he doesn't want us anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be part of this anymore. So Apollos has taken Paul's side. Well, we're going to go and replace him. And that's exactly what they do. They actually go out, and as we find out from 2 Corinthians, they say, well, to hell with the both of you, we're going to go get our own guys. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which will really help to spread it further. And you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media. You can find the link for these in the show notes. You might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do that through that same link. But anyway, back to the show. So if you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians back to back, they're completely different letters. 1st Corinthians is very confident. Paul is just very systematically dealing and very rationally dealing with these situations that are going on in the church. When we come to 2 Corinthians, Paul's an emotional mess. He's an absolute basket case. There is just so, it's a completely different person that we're dealing with, especially in the first few chapters of the letter. And what you also find when you read it is that he starts, he's talking about stuff that you go, what are you talking about, Paul? Like, what are you actually referring to here? So we get a good example of this. And this is the longest passage I'll read here, but just to give you a sort of a sense of the context. So 2 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, so I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. You go, another painful visit? Like, when was the first one? His first 18 months in Corinth. Well, that wasn't, what are you talking about here, Paul? For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, but you whom I grieve? I wrote to you as I did, that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. How did he, what are you talking about? I wrote as I did. First Corinthians, like, uh, I don't understand what you're talking about. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Well, that doesn't sound like a description of First Corinthians. Uh, writing with tears and being grieved and having to write that letter, that doesn't, 1 Corinthians just doesn't strike as having that tone. If anyone has caused grief, 
he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So at some point between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there's been a painful visit and there's been this letter that's been awfully difficult to write and there's also been some situation where somebody's been dealt with seemingly very severely or this person's also hurt Paul very severely and now has been dealt with severely in return. What are you talking about? Like none of this is seems to fit with anything that's happened up until 1st Corinthians. So what is going on here? Well, this is the important story that we need to recognize if we're going to understand 2 Corinthians. So Paul had sent our 1 Corinthians back with probably with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They, they were going back to Corinth, so it would have made, been, made logical sense to send it with those guys. But then he sent Timothy afterwards to follow up the letter just to check in what's going on because, the, you know, these, these are some real issues going on here. And the thing to have to keep in mind is that a lot of time has passed between when that letter was first sent to Paul from when he wrote his response and then sent it back. That's a several months of time has passed um, from this to happen. So the letter would have, so the original reports would have arrived in the beginning of spring over into Ephesus. And it's probably summer now by the time Paul has sent our first Corinthians. So even a few months has passed there. And then a few more months by the time he sent Timothy over to, to, to see what's going on. So Timothy goes to Corinth to check, to check the situation out. And then he comes back to Ephesus and things are not good. All right. Timothy has got a really, really bad report. So on the one hand, you've got these guys that have just outright rejected Paul. They have accused him of embezzlement and they have, as we find out, actually gone and replaced him. So they've actually brought in new apostles. Now we find out later on, these guys are called super apostles. Now that's not even a joke. And what makes it worse is that they actually gave themselves that name. Right, this isn't Paul, you know, being derogatory about them. No, no, no. They called themselves super apostles. That's how confident they were in themselves. So these guys have come in or they've been brought in to Corinth to replace Paul and very likely Apollos. And there's again, all of these suspicions around embezzlement have continued. So there's a lot of issues that are going on. There's there's this church is just on the brink of total collapse. And Paul realizes that another letter is not going to do this. Paul himself actually has to go back and deal, try to deal with this, this situation in person. So in the summer of that year, probably around summer 54, Paul makes what he has just referred to as a painful visit. This wasn't his first trip to Corinth. This is his second trip. And he's made, again, it's, it's a very devastating time. Now, there's a, there's a whole lot of like vague references that we piece together in 2 Corinthians, but the best that we can sort of come to uh, to come to understand about this um, this visit is that Paul's gone over there to obviously to address these concerns and what's happened while he's there is that they've effectively put him on trial now we've talked about this before but basically the way that a small community like these work is that the Romans are happy for you to deal with your own internal matters this is what Paul wanted to, them to do in Corinthians 6 if you've got these matters deal with them yourselves don't deal with them in the public courts deal with them yourselves. So this is an internal matter, and this is this is where it's appropriate to deal with it. So they effectively turn one of their church services into a court case. Paul is on trial for embezzlement and for a variety of other minor things, but certainly the main charge is embezzlement. 
and he seems to have been attacked by a particular person that he, again, he refers to before this, whoever this person has grieved him has stood up and attacked Paul and, and publicly accused him of embezzlement. Now, it seems that he has no other support. There's no one else has backed him up. There's no witnesses to um, prove that Paul has been embezzling, but nevertheless, the charges have been made. Now, this is a tense situation, as you could imagine. Imagine you're the pastor of a church and you come to church one Sunday and everyone's sitting around and they say, Pastor, we need to talk. And then they, someone stands up and makes all these accusations. And you're like, well, what the hell? Like, what, what's, what's going on here? Like, what do I do here? Well, anyway, they, they make this main charge, but then there are also some other accusations that they make. For example, that his letters were impressive, but his style is weak, right? So he's one of these uh, keyboard warriors. You know, they, they, they can write really nasty emails or send terrible things on social media, but when you confront them in person, they're actually gutless. So like a lot of people on social media. Um, so they, basically they're accusing Paul of being the keyboard warrior, that he's inferior in knowledge, that he's amateur in eloquence, that he refused their patronage, which is attached to the, the question of embezzlement, and he's, so he's dishonest in the use of the offering. Um, he lacks the genuine marks of an apostle, right? He does, he's not very impressive. He doesn't seem to have all the miracles that these super apostles seem to have. And that overall, he's a false apostle. That's the big charge. He, he must be a false apostle. So Paul offers a defense, and by his own confession later on, it was a pretty weak defense. Again, the guy's been caught off guard. These are his children. I mean, this a better analogy here is you come home as a dad, and your kids are sitting, and your wife is sitting around in the lounge room going, all right, we need to talk, and starts laying at all these accusations like, what the hell? You're my family. Like, what, what, what is going on here? What planet have I, have I stepped into here? So Paul gives something of a defense, but then leaves, goes back to Ephesus, and he, with a promise to return. He's going to come back and he's going to deal with this, but for the moment, the best thing to do is just to part company and just let cooler heads prevail. Right, he's given his defense, but it's not a very good one, so he'll come back and he'll, he'll make a better shot of it later on. Now, you talk about having a stressful year. Paul gets back to Ephesus, so we're, we're back to about winter now. So remember, you can't travel in winter, so it's been a really bad year. 54 has been a terrible year for Paul, and you kind of think it, it can't get any worse from here. But then he goes back to Ephesus, and over that winter, we read about this story of a riot so Acts 19.23, it's a story we've talked about before, but this riot happens and they're trying to kill Paul, right? They've, they're, they're, they're blaming him for losing business to Artemis. And so all of these silversmiths come together and start this riot and they want to kill Paul. And so he goes back to, like he's, he's gone to Corinth and, well, they don't want him dead there, but they certainly don't want him to be around. He's basically been kicked out of Corinth. And then he goes back to Ephesus where he feels like he's got friends back there and that's, you know, there's some good things happening there. Oh, no, there's not. Actually, they want to kill me, literally kill me over here as well. So Paul is just, 54 was just one of those years. All right? It was just a shocking year for Paul. Um, and so that's the worst possible way to top it off. And that on top of everything that's going on back in Corinth. So you just, again, I... <laughs> This is a really bad year that Paul is going through here in, in 54. So anyway, he goes through all of that situation. He's still got all the problems back in Corinth. All of that settles down, and eventually he just goes, all right, I need to just take a stop, take a moment, and just rethink what the next move is going to be. So we come to now spring 55. So 54 has just been a year to forget. 
Spring 55 comes around, travel is opened up again. Paul still has the issue to deal with back in Corinth. Um, he knows that his time in Ephesus, he's still in Ephesus. The time there is finishing up. I mean, a riot where they're trying to kill him is probably a good sign that it's time to move on. So he's got plans to move on, um, but he's got to finish this issue off in Corinth. Now, he's got two choices. One, he can actually go back and have a repeat of the situation. And frankly, if you if you consider the stress he's been through, I can perfectly uh, understand why he chose not to go back because that's exactly what he does. He says, I, don't, I, didn't, I chose not to come back because it just would have made matters worse. Instead, what he does is that he sends a letter of tears. Now, he talks about this in, again, in 1, 2 Corinthians 2, this letter of tears that he wrote as a response to the situation. Um, now, this time he sends it with Titus. Titus is probably a bit of a tougher guy. Maybe Timothy's a bit of a you know weaker sort of, you know, not, not some whatever. I don't know. But Titus is probably uh, seems to be the, uh, the person that brings this letter to Corinth. So he sends Titus over to Corinth to, um, to deal with the matters with a letter, but also to deal with the situation. Number one, to deal with this offender, this guy who's caused all of this problem. And then also to deal with the super apostles that are there trying to undermine his ministry because those guys are still there hard at work trying to tear Paul down. And then also to get the offering restarted. So those are the three key things that he has to do is, is to just to try to get this church back on track. So he sends Titus along with that. Meanwhile, he travels north. He heads up towards Macedonia. Um, his time in this whole missionary journey is finishing up. So he's going back around to Macedonia um, and sort of going back and revisiting the churches in Greece before he heads off to Rome. So that's that's kind of his plan. So he sends Titus off. Now, there's a whole lot of speculation about what this letter of tears is. Um, now, so... There's, there's some different theories. The, the One main theory is that the letter doesn't exist anymore. We just don't have it anymore. It's a letter that we just don't have. Uh, there's another major theory that the letter is actually found in 2 Corinthians 10 to 13. So if you take 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 away from 2 Corinthians, it actually forms kind of its own letter. It can actually stand alone by itself. And so scholars a couple of hundred years ago sort of looked at this and said, actually, probably what's happened is that this is the letter of tears, but they've stitched it onto the end of chapters nine um, and sort of made it to, into this one letter. Now, that's basically the position I take. It's a conversation for another day. But I read 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 as this letter of tears. So he sends this letter along. And if you read it in this context that I've described, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, Paul's really just giving the defense uh, in Corinth that he should have given when he was there in person. Having had time to think about it and really craft an articulate response, this is what he, he wanted to say back when he was in Corinth. So that becomes the letter of tears. So Paul sends that along with Titus. In the meantime, he travels north, heading up towards Macedonia in order to continue on the ministry up there. All right, so we're on the home stretch. So we're in spring 55. Paul has sent the letter of tears off with Titus. He's heading north. He goes first to Troas, which is just Troy. And then he heads back over to Macedonia to sort of say a bit of, bit of a farewell to her before he goes to Rome. Now, a few months has gone by, obviously. Travel is very slow, probably around summer, so several months later. And you can imagine Paul's he's carrying this. I mean, he sent Titus into the into the den of lions to deal with this problem. And if, if it fails, and this is the thing, if it fails, there is no more church in Corinth. It is a church of the super apostles. It's no longer a church of Paul. Right? The, the stakes are high here. Paul is, is potentially going to lose this church. 
So it's a lot riding on this, and that would have just been in the back of his mind this entire time. Everything, apart from everything else that goes on in his life, this is just another thing that he has to carry with him. Well, eventually he meets up with Titus again in Macedonia, and the news is really good. They've actually dealt with this offender. So they've, they've managed to deal with him and to effectively excommunicate him from the church. And they've also seemed to have dealt with the false apostles. Those guys don't seem to be there anymore. And then also they are ready to start the offering again. They're really, really sorry for what they've done. They're, they're shockingly sorry. They want to get the offering started again, but there are still some lingering doubts. There's a few things that Paul has said along the way. There's some changes of plan that have been made. For example, he said he's going to come back and then he just sends this horrible letter like, Paul, what's up with that? You know, like you, who are you really? You know, and, you know, you're given, you know, 12 to 18 months of being fed just bad news about who Paul is and, and fake news about who he is. Some of it's going to stick. Some of these, you know, the, the thing about, um, some of these negative accusations is that there's often a grain of truth in them. You take the small negative and you blow it out of all proportion. There's still some little things that Paul has to address. So on the one hand, Paul is incredibly relieved. Um, this is just I mean, the stress that would have just been taken off his mind in hearing that the church has come back to him would have been immense. And that's exactly the emotion you see in the first two chapters of the letter. Paul, it's such an emotional letter. I mean, it was written, it would have been written in tears of joy and just the tears of relief and, and all of this. It was a really passionate, uh, emotional letter that he's written. So he writes it specifically to respond to these issues. The first seven chapters are Paul explaining what's happened over the last year. It's just him trying to give an account of, of what's taken place and just his general emotional state. Um, and, and the reasons behind the decisions that he made. It's him really just, okay, now that we're talking again, let me explain to you. And this, I mean, how often have you been in this situation where you've got this hostile relationship with somebody that's blown out of all proportion um, and a lot of it based on speculation and assumption. And then you actually sit down with the person with, with cooler heads and you go, oh, that was what was going on the whole time. Oh my goodness. Oh, I was so stupid. So this is, it's, it's one of those conversations that Paul's having with them. So that's the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians. And then chapters 8 to 9 are Paul getting the offering started again. So what was four verses? 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4 is the first discussion of the offering. 2 Corinthians 8 to 9 is the expanded version. It's Paul getting that offering going again and explaining to them, this is, this is what it was always about. And this is specifically, this is how much you need to give. And we talked actually a lot about this when we we're talking about giving in, in a previous episode. So you can go and check that one out. So that's a long, long story. I hope you've been able to keep track with that, particularly with all the dates, but that's the basic backstory now of 2 Corinthians. It, it's probably one of my favorite letters of Paul, in fact. It's the, one of the most real, raw, passionate. I've heard one scholar compare it, say that it was probably, it's probably the most emotional letter that we have from the ancient world. It is just unprecedented in its emotion and just in its depth of grief that it's revealing. It's such a powerful and profound text. We'll come back to it in another episode and spend a bit more time with it. But anyway, look, I hope that's been helpful. Um, that's, again, the whole story, something of the story of Corinthians. But the story's not over yet. Paul actually has another goal in mind, which is to get to Spain. And the way that he's going to do that is that he's got to get through Rome. And so we're going to look next week at Paul's plans for going to Rome and, and how all of that comes about. So join me next week as we look at the letter to the Romans.